Hello and welcome to Unpacking Contract Law, the UK-based contract law podcast delivering unsolicited opinions on new and old contract law cases. The purpose of these podcasts is to provide you with an insight into our thoughts, ideas and ideologies around all things contract law. It also provides us with an outlet for all our opinions, so you listen at your own peril. Each podcast will feature a new contract law case with a discussion from three contract law enthusiasts. And it is thus my great pleasure to introduce you to Maggie Hemsworth, Severine Santier, and myself, Tim Dodsworth. Welcome to Unpacking Contract Law. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, um, wherever you are, dear listeners. This is... Um, us again, our 14th, 15th? 15th. I thought you were wondering then. Our 15th podcast. It is our 15th podcast. And today we are going to discuss the decision of Stoffel versus Grandona, which is a decision on illegality. Before we start, I would like to thank our generous benefactor, Newcastle University Law School. Newcastle Law School is also, I need to mention, now offering a brand new LLM in Emerging Technologies and the Law. And you can find out more on the Newcastle University website. So, without further ado, interesting facts of this uh, decision. There was uh, an agreement between uh, Mr. Mitchell and a Ms. Grandona uh, whereby uh, they had agreed to take out mortgages on four properties uh, in Ms. Grandona's uh, own name. But it was absolutely clear that uh, the mortgage uh, were a front and they were really for uh, Mr. Mitchell, who was unable to obtain uh, the loan himself. So the agreement uh, between Mr. Mitchell and Ms. Grandona was part of a fraudulent scheme. The Some solicitors uh, were hired uh, to act for the transfer of the four properties, but through an error, which was acknowledged by the solicitors, one of the properties uh, was not transferred from uh, Mr. Mitchell to Ms. Grandona. Her title was therefore never registered, which meant that the charge was never registered. Ms. Grandona defaulted on the loan and the lender brought a proceeding against her. Uh, Grandona joined the solicitors to the proceeding seeking damages, pleading a defence of illegality. This decision, we need to explain a tiny bit of uh, the process uh, by which it went uh, to the court. The High Court decided that Grandona was part of the fraud and therefore refused uh, that the defence of illegality could uh, apply. There was an appeal to the Court of Appeal because throughout uh, the process there was another important dispute that was going through the court to try to sort out the law on illegality and uh, the Court of Appeal following that decision, which was the Patel and Mirza 
which had been handed, handed down uh, since the High Court decision. And the Court of Appeal reversed the High Court uh, decision, saying that actually Ms. Grandona could claim damages following the Patel and Mirza, which had changed the rules somewhat on illegality. There was a further appeal to the uh, separate court on four grounds, but we are not interested in three of them. We are only interested in the fourth one, which was that there was an error in the application of the Patel and Mirza case. And this comes to uh, what I personally think is an interesting decision on illegality. In the decision, the Supreme Court confirmed the Court of Appeal uh, decision, saying that she is not barred, uh, Ms. Grandona is not barred from pleading what is referred to as the defence of illegality. And the Supreme Court looked at very carefully to the previous Supreme Court decision of Patel and Mirza and applied the criteria of uh, the Supreme Court Lord Toulson's criteria, as they are now called. Toulson was the one giving the leading judgment. And so this decision puts, therefore, the defence of illegality in an interesting context and therefore confirms uh, the position of the uh, Supreme Court in the Patel and Mirza. I think this is an interesting decision because illegality, which we haven't yet uh, discussed, and so I will look forward to the discussion with Maggie and Tim, who I now realise I haven't introduced at the beginning. How bad of me. Sorry, of course I am not the only one talking. Uh, I am not talking to myself just yet. Uh, so Dr. Tim Dosworth and uh, Ms. Maggie Hemsworth, as you know, dear listeners, are going to argue with me on this in an interesting fashion. So I am putting it to both of you, Tim and Maggie. The interesting thing of uh, illegality is that it actually raises, dare I say, moral questions about the role of the law, because one of the points that Lord Lloyd-Jones in this decision gives the legitimate judgment, who with uh, the rest of the Supreme Court uh, agrees, is that the illegality must not be seen solely in relation to the transaction in which uh, which has taken place but it is also important to look at the purpose of contract law and it re- lord uh, lord lloyd jones really paid attention to lord tolson's point in the uh, patel decision of we are looking here at the integrity of the legal system. So, is that the correct decision in light of the transaction? But perhaps more importantly, what uh, do you, Maggie and Tim, think of these judgment in relation to illegality as a defence? And is that right? And do we have... Is the integrity of the legal system kept? That's a big question. That is um, a big question indeed. Do you want to go first? That is a very big question. I don't even know where to start with that. Um, 
I think, I mean, I'll take the basic question of do I think it's the right decision? Yes, I, I do think it's the right decision. Um, I think what I, what I particularly, what's particularly interesting, and I have to say straight up, I'm not a big fan of illegality as a concept. I don't, anyway, um, Maggie's going to jump on that any moment now. I know that. I'm trying to be polite and let you speak. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, what have I done wrong? How do I deserve that bad treatment? Uh, so I think on the, what I found particularly interesting, I think, um, Severine, you, you were hinting towards that, is, is on the one hand this idea of um, protecting the law from the inconsistency and disharmony that then, of course, they point to Professor Burroughs as being, you know, what is inconsistency or, or in fact, disharmony. I mean, I'm, I'm particularly interested in the disharmony point, right? It's the idea of law in absolute harmony um, is an interesting one. But then later on as well, that they then that they're in question, well, we're not looking at the social consequences either. So we're looking just here, it seems, the, the hint seems to be, we're looking at um, inconsistent disharmony within the law itself, but we're not looking beyond the boundaries as to the potential consequences of that. Well, we and are, I, we are, we are, no, I think we true? are. Um, because, we are. Yeah. because we so have we to are. balance the purpose of maybe conflicting parts of the law and, and that's where this trio of considerations comes in, isn't it? Lord Toulson, the late Lord Toulson, much lamented late Lord Toulson's trio of considerations is to look first at the reasons why some activity is made illegal by the law and to see what would happen if standing alone one bars a claim because of that. So that's going to involve looking at consequences and social consequences and, and then balancing against that what conflicting law there might be to justify not barring the claim because of illegality. So there's the balancing comes in, but it's naturally going to be looking at consequences, I think. But that's interesting. So you're both, you're there right in paragraph 26, I think, which which where they say, competing policies point is where they say where the policies compete where the overall balance lies right that's that's yeah. that's what we're trying to find yes but previously in that same paragraph they say in particular i would not normally expect a court to admit or to address evidence on matters such as effectiveness of the criminal law in particular situations or the likely social consequences of permitting a claim in specified circumstances. No, but they're trying to say that they're, they're worried about a case of illegality getting hijacked, as it were, by an awful lot of expensive data and social evidence and reports of experts. So they're trying to put a break on that by saying this needs to be dealt with what they call as a high level of generality. I think by that they mean they're trying to put a break on a lot of extra evidence. So we're sort of almost, I don't want to use the word because it's so vague, but a common sense sort of level of understanding oh of, of what the consequences would be. Uh, so, for example, in this particular case, although I don't think they make a lot of it, I think actually it, there was a lot behind it. Um, the party that would have been really uh, disadvantaged by this uh, would have been the lender. Yes. And yes. they were wholly innocent 
as it were, if we want to talk about moralistic behaviour. They had no idea what the hell had been going on. They were a large building society who'd lent money on the faith of all this being entirely legitimate, and it wasn't. And it would be them that would be left out in the cold, as it were, because they wouldn't have been able to recover uh, much, if anything, of their loan. So I think that's quite a sort of powerful background point uh, that we we shouldn't really be easily running to a consequence that the law says, oh, well, there's so much illegality going on here uh, that you can't expect the courts to deal with this and give you any assistance at all, because that would be calling into disrepute the law because innocent third parties would be directly affected by this. That, now, that, that, that doesn't, it's not writ large in the judgment, but I think it is a theme in the background there, that there's an innocent third party here. Uh, yes, but also, Maggie, you did mention, you know, Lord Tolson's trio of necessary consideration. And I think if we look at the three elements, we do find that balance between, so the transaction itself, uh, which is looked at, the first one is the underlying purpose. The second one is the any other relevant public policy that a, a denial would have an impact on. So the, the, the first two elements are really wide and therefore that's what I would say, look at the societal and social element. And then the third one is, you know, zoning on in the transaction. What would it mean to uh, denying the claim? And they look here on, on a proportionality. You are right, Maggie, to consider the impact on the innocent party. But even though Ms. Grandona here was not technically an innocent party since she knowingly... Well, not technically. She, she was wasn't part of the whole thing. No, 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 no. Okay, so let me rephrase that. She went. No, no. She knew what she was getting into. But one element, which for me is interesting. So the plea of illegality. Maybe it was not clear from my from my introduction. So the reason why this is a really interesting area it's because here we are effectively so Ms. Grandona being part of the proceeding is saying I know I did something wrong but here I was an innocent victim and therefore I should too be entitled to damages and so here the plea I don't think the counsel for her was putting it that high no but that is effectively what the defense of illegality is whereby even though there is an illegal contract and you know the 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 notion of illegality is that no one should be able to benefit from their own wrongdoing but here the fact that through a mistake which was acknowledged by the solicitors she did suffer because of the error of the solicitor and that is where she joins uh you know the the, the plea in raising the defense of uh, illegality which in effect is saying i am not trying to so she was also a victim in that sense there were some real damages and the court does acknowledge that and for me that is the interesting part of the decision saying okay so can 
she indeed raised the the, the, the defense of illegality is is that is it can she therefore raise it so for me that is well well, well remember it's the solicitors who were raising say, she's that not, she's not raising the defense of illegality she's no. she's doing exactly no, it's, the opposite it's the, she's trying to say it's not it's, illegal it's the solicitors yes it's the solicitors saying you've no claim against us because you were a direct knowing participant in mortgage yes. fraud. So any mistakes that we made, uh, a claim that you would want to make against us in relation to that self-same tax transaction is barred by public policy illegality. So I, I accept to an extent what you're saying, Severine, um, but I'm not sure we could couch it in the terms of she's a victim. She, she has to get over this problem of uh, illegality as a as a general defence to say in these particular circumstances the defence of illegality does not apply. I know, but on it it was there were clear mention of the fact that she had suffered a, a, a real loss. So it is in that sense that it raises interesting decision in an, an interesting conundrum uh, for the law and so that's where the transaction needs to be put into the wider context but nevertheless here there is an interesting conundrum to solve as to whether indeed uh, she can be between her being a, a victim but the fact that she did suffer real loss was important uh, in relation to the whole plea of illegality and so for me that is the interesting part so and that is why i raise it in that i think that raises an interesting question which is what what if the bank hadn't been involved i think that's that's what's coming out of maggie's statement at the beginning that you know if we look at the end result the bottom line the bank is the one that's not getting their money right because because of this so the question being if there had been something illegal and the transfer would have purely benefited then then would she still have a claim? Yes, I think so. I think that's the interesting I, I question. I don't think there. the outcome would have been any different. Um, no, no, I don't I, either. Wearing a sort of fan, chief fan club of Lord Hoffman, I think, <laughs> had Lord Hoffman been sitting on this one, he would have said uh, in just simple causational terms... Uh, this yes. this is the end result. In other words, uh, the illegality is one thing, as it were, rather like Tinsley and Milligan, I think it is, if, if any student is looking at the, the previous law to this case, rather like that one, that the whole transaction um, was tainted by fraud, but nevertheless, there was a property interest which had been transferred uh, legally, lawfully, as it were, and in causational terms, um, the error of the solicitors is uh, entirely incidental to all of that. It's, if you like, in the background. It, they're, they're not involved in the illegality at all themselves. They're, they were incompetent, not, not uh, illegal in their activities. So that sort of falls away if you look at it in causational sense. It wouldn't even meet you know, what a tort lawyer would call the sort of but-for tests um, th their their error had no part to play in a causational sense with the fraud that was being perpetuated here 
Uh, and as Tim asks, I don't think that would make any difference if there hadn't been a mortgage. You've still got a transfer of property that was intended to be made, uh, even though the reason or motivation for it was illegal. And, and the error of the solicitor is in failing to register that transaction properly in the normal uh, way of doing it in terms of uh, property transactions. Yeah, and I think that is actually what comes out of the modification of the law following the Patel uh, and Misa case, where and, um, Lord Lloyd Joins does mention it clearly that... Uh, so reliance, so the whole following Patel, what is important is that the question whether a claimant must rely on an illegal conduct to establish a cause of action is no longer the determination, determinative of an illegality defense. Now, it is, so reliance is still uh, important. And so for me, what you've said is, is the crux uh, of the matter. It is possible to establish the claim without uh, reference to uh, illegality. So it is less important, but reliance uh, is still uh, important. And that's why I was raising uh, the question of the loss, which was mentioned at paragraph 45. The loss is a, is a real loss. And so therefore, the social element is so the balance following the change in the law is that it's still important uh, nevertheless so um i completely agree that perhaps you know the the the, the, the victim is is a bit of a, a strong word but for me the what you have just said is the interesting bit and this is what comes out of the change in the law following the uh, Patel uh, and Mesa case, uh, where to know whether the question, uh, whether a claimant uh, must rely on an illegal conduct to establish uh, a cause of action. So following the uh, Patel and Mesa case, this is no longer as uh, Lord Lloyd-Jones um, uh, refers to uh, paragraph 40, it's no longer a determinative of an illegality defence. But then he goes on uh, in order to review the third element, that it's still, that reliance, uh, is it still important? And what I was trying uh, to argue here is the fact that uh, Ms., uh, Ms. Grandano's claim uh, against her solicitor is that uh, she has suffered a, a, a real loss, you know, so she is not just trying to benefit from her own un, un, um, wrongdoing here. So for me, that is the interesting balance of she has done something wrong and yet following entering into uh, a, a, a contract which is uh, illegal, she has nevertheless suffered a loss. So for me, this is also the the whole idea of, um, you know, the, the purpose of contract when there is a breach, etc., etc. So for me, that is quite interesting um, to slightly uh, unpack. And so uh, reliance uh, is still important. It's possible to establish the claim uh, without the reference uh, to illegality. I suppose it's useful to, to bear in mind. I think common law has a real problem here uh, 
really, when you talk about done something wrong and illegality, the fundamental problem is to borrow, I think, Lord Sumption, and I'm going to uh, totally massacre the French language here, Severine, but it's the Laboratoire Servier Apotheque case. You'll be able to say the name much more fluently than me, obviously. But in that case, Lord Sumption says, really, the question for the common law is what illegality counts for these purposes? You know, we, we talk about doing yes. something no, we... wrong. And at the, right at the beginning of this, you talked about morals, but, but it, it's not that. Uh, it, it is the law. But, but what law? You know, all crimes... Um, some crimes are strict liability. Uh, some crimes are very minor and you'd only get a fine or something. Um, uh, the ones that come to court are naturally the more serious crimes, I suppose. But um, common law has to have to stop and think. Do, do we mean all crimes? Uh, and do we include maybe other wrongdoing? Because you talked about doing something wrong. So do we include breach of contract for example you normally view that as illegality it's unlawful because you don't have a right to do that but it doesn't make it Ill illegal as such uh, do we mean some forms of torts so intentionally doing some harm to somebody D do we mean that so fraudulent misrepresentation is perhaps an easy one because we've got fraud buried in the middle of that this case is an easy one in a sense because it's mortgage fraud which is quite a serious crime but there will be other crimes where you think, well, hang on, is this sufficient, as Lord Sumption would say, sufficient turpitude, he uses that old-fashioned language, to even engage yes. public policy? Uh, and we haven't really grappled with that, other than, I suppose, the first stage of Lord Toulson's trio uh, would, I suppose, uh, implicitly engage that question. Um, but but it's a difficulty for uh, judges because how are they really to decide? And I suppose Lord Tolson is aware of that and, and is saying, well, no, let, let's look at the public policy behind that activity having been made illegal. But but that, to my mind, is, is a particular problem uh, for the common law and knowing, knowing what form of uh, illegality we're, we're worrying about. And the other point I think is worth mentioning for students is that some um, judges, and, and you referred to the reliance test having been jettisoned, certainly if you look at Patel and Mirza, you will see that that wasn't a unanimous decision. Uh, and there were minority speeches, I think Lord Mance and Lord Sumption, uh, who said there's nothing much wrong with the reliance test if it's understood correctly. Um, and so that they would have difficulty with the trio, in fact, did have difficulty with the trio of considerations because it looks, at first blush at any rate, uh, rather discretionary and therefore uh, rather uncertain. I don't know what you think about that, but they're the two things that I'm worried about. What, what counts for uh, illegality sufficient to engage the common law? And the other one is, have we really got a discretion now dressed up in a three-stage structured approach? And if so, does it matter? Does it matter, though? Does it matter? It's discretionary. It's really interesting what you are uh, saying, Maggie, because, uh, yes, it is true that um, Patel and Mesa was not... Um, 
a unanimous judgment. So today we're looking at Stoffel and, and Grondona, but actually I think uh, on top of my head there has been at least two more Supreme Court uh, decisions uh, on uh, illegality going at some length to review Patel uh, and Mirza. And so here the fact that it was a, a unanimous uh, decision perhaps is to um, strengthen um, the fact, that, you know, strengthen. Well, you, uh, you Patel, can view that uh, in two senses. You can view that in one sense, simplistically, that this is the Supreme Court drawing a line under the past and saying, well, well, this is how it is from now. Uh, and then the other point I would make, perhaps more cynically, is that members of the Supreme Court naturally change through time. Uh, and therefore, you have perhaps a different outlook. Uh, from the judges that we have now than those that we might have had under the sort of um, much more a sort of commercial bar type background of, of people like Lord Manson, Lord Sumption, who perhaps might take a, a clearer uh, a line, as it were, with harder rules. Absolutely. Well, may say that they all have different underlying values. Yeah. Yes. Anyway, moving on to the... So I, I really like, Maggie, what you were saying about the common law struggling with the illegality. I, I think I'd like to kind of push in there as well something that keeps coming up uh, in the judgment, which is at, at what point are we going over the threshold and th trying to punish? Right? At, when, at what point are we doing what criminal law is, is meant to be doing? In other words, push, punishing the other side. No, well, the civil court... Surely the civil court would be constantly at pains to say uh, punishment, unless we're into the area of exemplary damages, for example, that sort of tort law domain. Uh, this is Absolutely. not what so that civil part law of the policy about. decision has to um, be then jettisoned out of the consideration, right? What we consider to be wrong is now yeah, being removed. I don't yeah, think exactly. it features at all. I don't think that features at all, which might support some of what Severine is saying in terms of seeing uh, uh, the, the claimant, Miss Grondano, mm -hmm. as, a, as a victim, if I put that in, qu in quotes. Thank you, Maggie, you are agreeing with me. It's hard to express her as a victim. It's hard to express her as a victim. And I think if I was her advocate, I would stray very far away from using that sort of language. Nevertheless... The, the the focus of the civil law is generally speaking and i think not that's the consideration punish. though isn't and it and any punishment so that... comes from the criminal law well she she may as far as we know have been um, tried for fraud uh, you know in the, in that mortgage setting who who would know and and that's not really the domain of of the civil court which i think i'm agreeing with you tim Yes, I think I think so. I think I think it's it's we can almost go to the point that we say it's not just that it's not a consideration. It's it actively has to yeah. not be a consideration, yeah, yeah. right? They they are attempting quite clearly to not yeah. punish rather yes. than thinking about how yes. to punish. Yes, and I think not, your point, your they're moving away a from punish, while punish, ago yeah. is actually the central uh, aim. I would say in this context. That is to ensure consistency and coherence. I think, Severine, you use the word integrity. I have a little, I understand what you mean by that, but it's sort of, if, if a listener is, is hearing that word, they might view it in terms of morality. I, d I don't think it's meant in that sort of sense. It's about the consistency and coherence with the criminal or other 
branches of law. So whatever is happening in the civil court. Yeah, no, I agree with you. And we can draw on these. So the uh, paragraph uh, 46 of the judgment where uh, Lord Joy, Lloyd Jones said the true rationality of the illegality defence is that it should not be permitted if to do so would result in an incoherent yeah. contradiction yeah. of yeah. the legal system. Yeah. So integrity yeah. in yeah. that yeah. Yeah. sense, yeah. not but, yeah. but nevertheless the, the, the points that you both have made uh, is nevertheless important in relation to the wider considerations of what it is that we are trying to, what that contract law here is trying to do. That is a fair point. Yeah. I think he says it even clearer at, at paragraph 26, doesn't he, where he talks about um, the desirability of a policy and then says uh, that a given policy should be promoted, but because of the bearing on determining whether to allow a claim would damage the integrity of the law by permitting incoherent yeah. so contradictions. So it's used in that sense. So it's not so much the integrity, it's the incoherent contradictions. It's a contradiction. Yes, that is the, uh, is, but, but Severine's right, focus. he does use that word, but in the sense of consistency and coherence. So any student wondering about this case, I think paragraph 26, is, as Tim refers to, it is, is, is the clearest guidance that we have. So uh, paragraph 26 is Although throws up the one. most questions because it's the one we've spoken about the most. <laughs> well, it, it has <laughs> the guidance uh, for the future. Well, I think it is because it is a genuine... So, you know, contract law looks at transactions, individual transactions, and usually we only consider the impact of those transactions between the parties, either because one of them has not done what uh, they promised or has has under-delivered. So we tend to look at contract law in the context solely of the individual transaction and the impact that the acts of the parties may have upon each other. Although, if I just interject, Severine, I know you're a French lawyer and therefore you're not going to like this, but of course, that is not to forget that we have a, essentially a common law system, not a codified system. And, and therefore, although the particular outcome in the particular case is of only interest to the parties, and to that extent, I agree entirely that contract law is a private uh, form of law. Nevertheless, because we have a common law system, potentially lays down new law as it were for everyone else so uh, there is a wider interest yeah no 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 oh, jumping gosh, to the you know, defense the, the of, of is, is, civil law is for me which is that they do that as well yes for me the much wider interest is but we'll, we'll that's maybe a whole different podcast i know yes of, i think you know, i think we you know we we, we need a comparative to, contract a law podcast of the impact of the you know the transaction on the wider uh, society and looking at values and looking at oh gosh yes well maybe let's not open that pandora's box but no do all you, i wanted you know to say who, was who else what is interesting with illegality is precisely so maggie i completely uh, agree with you you know my civil law uh, background is perhaps now morphed a, a lot more into uh, the, the common law system and, uh, and the interaction is important. But for me, what is interesting about the plea of illegality, uh, a 
do you know who, who else has an impact or you know the, the the issues arising within an individual uh, private transaction must nevertheless be seen in the wider context i completely uh, agree uh with you and um can I just say, therefore, as an interlude here, that the impact of these uh, wider uh, consideration uh, are important uh, in relation to the offering of the brand new LLM in emerging technologies uh, and the law. Uh, and if you want to find out how law, economics, politics and society uh, intersect in the context of a digital world, then uh, visit uh, Newcastle uh, Law School uh, on the website ncl.se.uk. Thank you once again for Newcastle Law School for sponsoring uh, Unpacking uh, Contract Law. If you do have also um, recommendations for us to consider, we have perhaps uh, whetted your appetite about considering uh, law in the much wider societal context context you can of course send us an email at unpacking.contract.law at gmail.com that was what such a, a smooth transition <laughs> from now on Severine you're always doing that indeed um. well I, I suppose it's a reminder to us isn't it that uh, contract law is not an island yeah. um, and naturally there are other jurisdictions you might do things differently but also within english law there are other branches of law that one has to keep an eye out on and, that, and that's a difficulty so we're both trying to look at it in the wider context and at the same time we're excluding a context entirely which is you know the urge probably to think well this person has wronged therefore we need to do something about it which isn't which isn't the purpose of contract law yeah but that's just a knee-jerk that's reaction, just a knee exactly so exactly we, we can get over that quite so nicely. we have to try very hard not to i would that. like to jump I mean, in do you think over and all oh, go on, i was going to jump in say, again on the discretion you point you mentioned is this just discretion yes. wrapped up um in in this in this very broad test something would you say... Um, and also, though, does it matter well, if it is uh, discretionary? D does it matter? Because, you know, judges make discretionary judgments on lots of different things. So is this a big deal to have it in this way? Quite. And, and uh, well, and the other question is, if that is the case, do we need to do we need to say that? Right. Is it is it is it an attempt to disguise discretion? In which case not the biggest fan but if it is discretion and we label it as discretion then why not well i think lord tolson wouldn't have liked that no that would he because i think he he went to some length to try and underline to people that this trio of considerations was uh, not uh, a complete free reign to any judge to get out there as someone once said, I think it was Lord Burroughs, their portable palm tree <laughs> and, and just decide on whim from case to case because that lies, the, the, you know, uh, total incoherence and uh, make a laughing stock of the whole process. So at the same time, I think one has to recognise that the range of illegality, as we were saying earlier, is immense and the reasons why some conduct may have been made illegal by statute or the common law um, uh, varies greatly. 
And therefore, it's probably quite hard to have anything, dare I suggest it, anything firmer than what Lord Tulson's come up with. Yes, and, and the Supreme Court itself has gone to some length to try to, uh, I mean, the fact that all the, you know, we only have at one judgment, um, Lord Lloyd Jones uh, in this one, the rest simply uh, agrees. Uh, and from memory, it is the same in uh, the other Supreme Court uh, decision. They are, um, there is not much discussion. Well, that's, that's perhaps, as, as we said earlier, in an effort to make this very clear, as soon as yeah, yeah. you yes. as soon as you get a number of speeches, you get people like us and other people <laughs> pouring I know, over I'm going it. To dissecting um, and, and yeah. just what judges say we shouldn't do—that their speeches are not the words of a statute and are not really to be analysed in that fine degree of, of uh, scrutiny. So I think this is this is the current Supreme Court saying, look, this is as good and as clear as it gets. Uh, it's a high level of generality, as Tim and I were discussing earlier. Don't deluge the court with an immense amount of expert and other uh, data and uh, learned tomes on sociological uh, impacts on people. Forget that. We want to keep this within its proportionate, if I use the Lord Toulson word again, um, not overkill, I think is the phrase, a much more English type uh, phrase. He used um, we, uh, the third stage is to stand back at the judgments that you've made on the first two stages, as it were. So what pulls towards rejection because of illegality? What pulls towards ignoring the illegality in the civil setting? And then that third stage is to stand back from those two-stage balancing exercise and ask yourself, is the end result, if it was barring, uh, overkill? So really, does this test then actually make sense? Ultimately, we also mustn't forget um, the other underlying uh, purpose of contract law and the dreaded uh, C word of certainty, that ultimately Patel and Mirza was also there. Uh, so it was important for Patel and Mirza uh, to solve uh, the lack of certainty that uh, following the state of the law, a few incoherent decisions, uh, there was a string of incoherent decisions. So aside, you know, whatever we have discussed, perhaps we also now need to discuss the importance of uh, the need for contract law to be uh, certain. Uh, and so that element, in the light of what we've discussed, the fact that indeed there are, you know, that here we have only one uh, judgment and in later uh, Supreme Court decision is therefore very important to put contract, to put the defence of uh, illegality back into some sort of certain rules which can be followed but we probably did need another case after patel and mirza because just to view it very strictly in a sort of common law sense uh, that is incremental decisions that are made on on small points uh, the only real tiny point on patel and mirza is whether illegality in that setting uh, barred the restitutionary claim so this is um, getting mm. your money back, as it were, 
from a co-wrongdoer, again fraud. Um, so that's actually a different question though, isn't it? From the one that we've had uh, more recently, that is whether the illegality bars the claim uh, rather than a restitutionary claim. There's a difference between getting something positive from getting your money back, as it were, so that they, they needed to grapple with it, I think. The Supreme Court needed to grapple with this another time on from Patel and Mirza just to deal with that extra mm. point, as it were. Does that sort of make sense? Believe it or not, I tend to agree with that. What has happened? Good Lord. I'm going to have. I'm going I to think, have. I think we all do now because Tim we, has, has. Do we have? Do we have? Unbelievable, and it's taken. And just funnily enough, I don't know whether you realise this, but almost to the day right now, it was two years ago when we started this podcast. Yep, it was on Friday, I believe. So, I mean, to our listeners. So that's just telling, dear listener, something that is through debate comes greater understanding. Oh my, I'm agreeing again. That's a bit that's a bit deep, I know. But I hope listeners you get something out of these, even if you don't agree with everything that we say or indeed I hope, anything I hope that we some say. Disagree. At least giving giving some thoughts to it. Who knows? Good grief. Shall that's, we start that's it. This is the end. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think the Go phrase ahead. is quit while you're ahead. Yes. Or the other phrase is, when in a hole, stop digging. Yes. We'll have to decide which one we're <laughs> going for, whether we're in a hole or whether we're ahead. Uh, oh, okay. Um, I thought I'd just throw that in. Okay. Uh, maybe in the next one we'll have a reflection on um, which one was our favourite podcast, looking back over two years. Um, oh, okay. Oh, we could get votes. Ooh, what a People good idea. This is when we find so out that far. actually no one no one stays on until the last minute. <laughs> no one likes no one likes any of them. Um, okay. So no, now the we numbers, have to decide what we do next time. The numbers are still uh, growing. So, uh, dear listeners, yes. thank you uh, very much yeah. for that. Um, on that note, since we have a consensus, either. Uh, you know, quitting whilst ahead or stop digging a hole. We have a consensus. I will take that <laughs> as That's positive. That's all um, we don't yet know what uh, our next uh, podcast is. If you do have uh, some views, remember uh, to email us at unpacking.contract.law at uh, gmail.com. Uh, but otherwise, I think we've discussed a few things I'm sure will uh, come up. Uh, with uh, something. Uh, it remains up to me to say thank you to team uh, and thank you to Maggie for this uh, lively uh, discussion and we have a consensus amongst us. Uh, what a perfect way of uh, ending the year of uh, 2022 uh, um, and our 15th podcast. Thank you very much uh, for listening and thank you. goodbye. Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you.